So to me, there's enough bad things out there coming towards us, looming, that as many people as possible need to be able to implement discipline, to be part of the creative bit that means the mass can rise and settle in behind at a level where as a whole we can survive existential threat. I'm here this morning with a highly caffeinated David Orney. How are you, David? I am really caffeinated. Liam <laughs> made me a coffee and then Tim bought me a coffee. So by the end of this, I am going to be spinning around and around in my chair and quite possibly choking myself with the microphone cord. Not deliberately, I promise. Oh, I see. <laughs> Whimsically, yeah. Whim- right. Or just from spinning. <laughs> if there is a cable, it will end bad. <laughs> well, David, I attended the first lecture um, of your new semester in complex problem solving yesterday. And it was good to kind of come back, but it's definitely the first lecture was one of the best ones for me just out of realizing that I needed to attend all of them. Uh, That was a great thing to work out and it was nice having an audience. And thanks for coming and visiting because I think you saying what you learned and how you learned it and you need to do this because this will help. Mm. I think hopefully will be helpful for the students. Mm. Well, that's the thing. I think think everyone is kind of more open to listening to advice because they actually – have an interest in maintaining the information outside of what grades they get. So yeah. that's probably the important thing. But it's one of my favorite lectures. And, you know, I used to always tell my friends that it was great just listening to you cut through the bullshit was the way that I phrased it. You know, another, another thing that you brought up was an author that you fell into argument with. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. She's a very, 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 very smart lady. So whatever I say from this point onwards, I'm never going to diminish how highly capable Rebecca Costa is. I just don't agree with Rebecca Costa. So, you know, what happened was that Rebecca Costa wrote a book called The Watchman's Rattle, in which she argued from the perspective of sociobiology that we have hit an evolutionary wall. Our thinking tools can no longer deal with the complexity of the problems we're facing. And she went back and used the examples of the Khmer empire in Cambodia, of Rome, and I think the Incas or the Mayans, or maybe both. Again, so long ago now since I read the the whole details of the book. But she picked examples and said, look, the complex problems hit them, and they got into sort of intellectual practical gridlock, and then there was cataclysmic disaster and collapse of empire. And we're heading towards the same point. We desperately need to do something. We desperately need to do something. And what she concluded is she took a very sociobiological response, and that was, you know, we need to work on developing super memes to develop and enhance people's capacity to think about big ideas together. We need to take the whole species and move us all forward as a lump. Now, my first response to that is, How can you be a sociobiologist and think you will move us forward as a lump and mass? Mm -hmm. A few of us will randomly do things different and in the environment we will do well. So let's get evolution under control here because it's really important. Evolution doesn't mean you have an advantage and then you get to thrive. It means the world throws something in front of you and through dumb luck you survive And that dumb luck then gets repeated because you teach someone or you breed 
and the world stays like it was and they get an advantage from your genetics and what you taught them from the nature and the nurture. So without the world having thrown something in front of you that makes you the next best bet, you, know, you didn't do it. The world did and you responded. Mm. So you know, to think that it's you were the most adaptive, well, you were, but you wouldn't have known if the circumstances didn't happen. So it's not to say that we don't have choice. We always have choice, but you only have choice once the circumstances emerge. And to my mind, she was you know, not acknowledging that aspect. So I wrote quite a scathing review mm-hmm. of her book saying, well, I'm not clear that you've actually described evolution properly. You've only described civilizations that failed. And I said, I'm going to actually challenge you on Rome's failure. You know, Rome didn't fail because they couldn't deal with their intellectual tools. Rome failed because they outsourced their security because they got soft and lazy. Hmm. They paid off the German tribes to manage some borders. They paid off different tribes to manage their eastern borders. The empire got too big and rather than take on the responsibility of managing it, they split control between the east and the west, thus actually creating two competing empires. We talk about Rome failing and falling. Yes, it did. The Eastern Empire went on until the sacking of Constantinople in, what is it, 1462? A very long time. Yeah, so we had a thousand years of the Eastern Empire fighting off everybody and everything until finally it got overwhelmed. So, oh, Rome went under, big deal. Eastern Empire didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And by ignoring things like this, what she was fundamentally ignoring is discipline and existential threat in combination can save the day. Mm. So, you know, I wrote this. I was, I disagreed with her, but wasn't mean to her. Dis- you know, disagreed without being disagreeable. disagreeable. Mm. Yeah. Again, I, I wasn't impressed, but I attacked the ideas, not the not the man mm. or, or girl, woman. Mm. Um. I'm in Canberra visiting my wife. It's you know when we we're still just a couple and not engaged yet, and it mm. was one of those horrible early September mornings where it was somewhere between minus six and minus nine, and my phone rings, mm-hmm. and it's an angry Rebecca Costa, <laughs> <laughs> and we talked for a few minutes. Like it's six in the morning, and it's at least minus six. Mm-hmm. We disagree. Let's do this via email and then maybe we can publish it as a blog. Yeah. Yeah. So really for 24, 36 hours, we had emails going back and forth nonstop. That we didn't get to the point of agreeing. Mm. I got to the point of just being frustrated and I'm guessing she did too. Mm Mm-hmm. Because what I wanted to argue, and you know, argued in the lecture yesterday, which is what you found interesting now hearing it a second time, I wanted to go through today, is yes, we have very different or very definite intellectual limitations. Our brains have evolved incredibly, but they've still, at the moment, hit a certain degree of a wall. Mm. But through discipline, we can work around the problem. And that we only tend to work around the problem and we only tend to use enough discipline when we're under existential threat. That was a really long intro into what we talked about, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, slightly, but it's all the context we need. 
I'd, I'd be I'd be severely interested to read those emails, but ah, uh, if I can ever find them, I'll find them <laughs> for you. I and I'd, I'd actually I'd like to know how how she would defend her view as well because. I certainly lean on your side and that's I'm not sure if that's just a bias but well I think what probably happened was even though when I wrote up my response to her and I spoke about Rome mm. what of course I talked about in the lecture yesterday is I used World War 2 as the perfect example of overcoming our intellectual limitations mm. and that is the Germans were organized and as we now know, thanks to a wonderful book called Blitzed, they were addled on speed, which made them incredibly capable in combat in the early phase of the war, mm. meaning they took Belgium and France faster than even they believed they could do. That what saved the British army at Dunkirk was the Germans couldn't believe what they'd achieved. That Hitler was so shocked by the rate of progression of his armies into France and Belgium that he called a halt because he was terrified that the generals, people like Guderian, were going to be seen as gods and that the military would be able to kick his ass out and replace him. Hmm. So what saved the British army at Dunkirk was Hitler's ego. Which is strange, isn't it? Because it's, it's not necessarily the narrative that we're no. sold. <laughs> Again, it's a brand new narrative and hmm. audience, feel free to have a go at me, but <laughs> go read Blitzed first. Now, I can't remember the German science journalist's name who wrote it, but if you look for Blitzed, German Army on Speed, you'll find it no problems. It's a fascinating read. It turns out that basically Guderian's spare staff car was full of suitcases of speed. Wow. That huge numbers of people in the German Army had been on speed for up to 11 days. Holy at, cow. <laughs> which is really bad. Oh, yeah. And that there were a mass of deaths in late 30s, early 40s, very fit majors and colonels because quite simply by that age their hearts couldn't take it that's that's full on and you know in his research he found all these amazing photos of german troops you know in france asleep mm. Mm, mm. <laughs> just you know gaga unconscious when they got to the point of the speed crash mm. so yeah you know, we can't argue with that happening more. now the germans had that advantage but what we see is early in the war the Brits are getting their asses kicked mm. because we've got a military elite who've survived World War One but been highly traumatised by it. Mm. You know, a war is terrible. You know, all war is terrible. But World War One was even more terrible. Just carnage on that mechanical industrial scale mm. was horrific. Now, the generation of soldiers who stayed on they saw that technology was getting better and better and they were willing to incorporate it. You know, planes, tanks, everything. They were making use of all the new technology, but they couldn't conceive that the tactics would be radically different. Mm. Whereas the Germans had taken a tactical leap. Yeah? The biggest thing the Germans had done, and they'd done it brilliantly, is they'd got radios into armour. So individual tanks could talk to individual tanks while thundering across Europe, kicking ass which gave them an ability to fight and move with a level of precision unheard of in history. Mm. So this just gave, on top of speed, the German army an incredible combination. Mm. So speed and FM radio. Well, I mean, and they were preparing for war for a lot longer as well. Yeah, but yeah. You know, now if we look honestly, we go, their kit in '39 was not that much better than anyone else. Really? Wow. Yeah, you know, the biggest difference was their army in '39. Mm. they were only allowed to have a, an army of a certain size. So what they had done 
is train an army where everyone in it was at the level of being able to train the next army. Mm. Everyone was at the spec level of being able to train a squad. So it was an army of highly competent people who could train the next competent people. So that was really their biggest advantage, that and speed. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Brits, you know, everything goes very badly in Europe. Dunkirk, it's dumb luck. Mm -hmm. And then incredible planning. And... You know, as I said in the lecture yesterday, the critical thing is that the Brits were led by a contrarian, that Winston Churchill was odd. <laughs> that you know, Churchill had had incredible successes, incredible failures, was his own person. You know, read, wrote, thought nonstop, was certainly permanently self-medicating mm-hmm. between nicotine and alcohol to get a balance between being manic and unconscious or you know and the depression knocking him down now it seems like in the new biography by andrew roberts the depression might have been oversold but he is certainly someone by his early 20s who is self-medicating non-stop to maintain some sort of functional level at all times mm. but what was great about having a contrarian is he was a contrarian in a democracy that could separate faith and science and it was a meritocratic place where if you were a smart enough kid, even in the 30s, 1930s, you could get a scholarship to Cambridge or Oxford. Mm. So this was a society that could find and utilise talent, was open to the political elite having a contrarian in control, could allocate resources quickly once it realised it was going to die, it was potentially going to lose the war, existential threat made them realize have to change the game and churchill did change the game radically he created organizations like the special operations executive he hired people like patrick blackett a brilliant young physicist who was a socialist and a bohemian churchill didn't care (laughs) that this guy had totally different political views blackett was brilliant had had just enough time in the navy and was a flexible thinker and knew everyone who was a scientific, flexible thinker. So this caused the birth of what we now call operations research, whereas you take really talented scientists, really well-trained soldiers, and go, the only way that military technology and tactics will get better is if the military are open enough to work with the scientists, and where the scientists have to accept that what they do scientifically is going to be used to win wars. Mm. But the combination of the two is... The military want to be ruthlessly effective and save the most lives by a winning fast and scientists want to keep refining and improving through hypothesis and then testing. So we end up with this thing called operations research that is a perfect example of overcoming our intellectual limitations because it says, when in doubt, create a disciplined system that guarantees better than normal performance. Train your soldier so on the worst day they fall to the level of their training. Train your scientist so that even when they know if we don't get this right, our country maybe gets invaded and we will all be killed because we're dangerous. Get over it. Apply scientific method with rigour. Know how to be disciplined. So never stop being creative because a proportion of science is incredibly creative. 
but know that once you've had the idea that the process of testing it and refining it is just a process. Yeah, And the process of improving um, tactics for war is very similar. You need creativity. You know, David Sterling, who created the SAS, wanted to learn to leap out of an aeroplane. Just gave it a go. <laughs> now, I can't remember if it was the first or second jump, fractured his spine. Whoa. Because there was no one to train the SAS. Yeah. So he thought, well, if I'm going to train my guys to leap out of planes behind the lines, I have to know how. There are currently no training people available to my unit. Screw it. Jumped out of a plane. <laughs> yeah. When he initially started training the regiment before they worked out a safe way to train it, he was getting guys to jump out of the backs of trucks at 20 miles an hour. Wow. To learn to do hard landings wow. until they realized that was breaking too many dudes and we better slow the trucks down. <laughs> so what you see here is the creativity, both in science and in military tactics, the minute you see the creativity works, now you have to teach everyone else. Mm. And the only way you can do that is to then create a disciplined process that everyone else can be trained to. And what the best disciplined systems do while under existential threat is not just train people to competence, but train them to competence, letting them also know when you become excellent, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to push the limits where you see an opportunity to create the next thing that's better than this. So Sterling's number two in the SAS. His number two, they needed a bomb that they could put on planes that would both light the fuel up and do incredible damage to the aluminium airframe. And he came up with a combination of an explosive uh, a mineral and I think heavy fuel oil that the combination together meant it burned, it burned hot, it would burn the airframe and it would ignite the fuel. But he created this by playing around on the edge of the base until he got it perfect. Mm. And they were initially making these things in like a two pound bag with the fuse hanging out the top <laughs> until they could get someone to manufacture them more formally. Armourers were horrified because it had broken all the rules. Mm. But you know, as Sterling said, I told him to be careful and I told him to do it away from everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so what we see here is, again, train someone to be careful but then give them creative freedom. Train them to be disciplined and then give them creative freedom. So empower them and then allow them to execute. And that what really World War II is an incredible combination of from the Allied side. And as I made the point in the lecture yesterday, one of the great advantages of populations in World War II is they'd all been through the Depression. Mm. These people knew if they wasted food, someone in their family went hungry. If they wasted fuel oil, they were going to be cold. If they wasted the kerosene for the lamp, there'd be no light to do their homework. And if they didn't do well at school, what the hell were you going to do in a world where you know, there were zillions of people struggling to get a job as a labourer? Mm. So you took people who, whether they quite understood what they'd done, had learnt discipline and then put them under existential threat and applied even stronger discipline 
but then also said, because we're in an existential threat war, we can't just have you showing basic initiative. You know, in most militaries, in most scientific environments, in most manufacturing environments of World War II, there was always scouting for the talent to take talent out of the just get it done pool and put it in the get it done better pool. Mm. And it didn't matter if it was a factory, a workshop, a training facility, an elite unit, a conventional unit. You know, the SAS you know, became famous for almost being you know, piratical in how they would just turn up having done dastardly do, show up in front of another unit and go, if you're good enough, if you're hard enough, sign up. <laughs> and of course, people would. <laughs> you know, because it was like, well, if I'm going to be in this war anyway, who do I want to fight this war with? Mm. I want to fight it with the most competent, ruthless, effective people. Because one, will have a maximum impact. And if this war is going to kill me, because we can't see the end in sight, if this is going to kill me, how big an impact can I have? And if I'm going to survive this, don't I you know, have a better chance of surviving this surrounded by overachievers? So, you know, Blackett takes science to this level of hyper-competence than allowing creative freedom in the UK. Mm. The Americans copy what Blackett does. People like Alan Turing go to this hyper level of competence with creative freedom at Bletchley Park with code breaking. Both SOE and Bletchley Park send people to America to get the Americans up to speed, which they don't probably now want to admit. (laughs) Um, People come to Australia to kick off science and special forces here in the same way. Mm. Our history wants to make out that the war was won by the everyman you know, doing his duty, the every woman, mm. you know, working in the factory, and it couldn't have been one without them. But the thing that took us to the point of overcoming the complex problem of confronting Nazism, that took us to the point of overcoming individual intellectual limitations, was the combination of existential threat leading to better discipline systems leading to better performance, and that in all these systems, if you overachieved, there was room for creativity and going to the next level of being the problem solvers at the top. Mm. And that that combination of things, you know, this generation are called the greatest generation by multiple historians. Mm. They themselves were just people like us with the same intellectual limitations. But because of the experience of the depression, the nature of the war, of living in democracies, of living in democracies that could separate faith and scientific method, of being meritocratic enough to put talent where it needed to be, of being meritocratic enough to allow a poor kid from a nowhere background into a great university with a full scholarship, you know, to be able to take someone who'd really underachieved their whole life and by the end of the war they could be you know, a major in the SAS. This is remarkable because it says, stuff your limitations. Mm -hmm. We'll empower you as much as we can and then we'll let you go further and the minute you learn the next cool thing, you teach the rest of us it. And we normalise that into all of our competence. So how does that kind of disrespect people that were already, let's say, experts or recognised in the system? Oh, see, this is the fascinating thing is... 
expertise at the beginning of World War II, whether it be military or scientific, was often too orthodox and too slow. Mm. And what we see is, so for example, the Germans, science was pushed hard by the Nazis and it became a little bit unorthodox. The difference was, say in Britain or America, the lab of serious achievers would be left to their devices, but the young'uns who wanted to push hard would be put in a lab together and get a breakthrough. So it would be, look, if the system won't bend, make a parallel one. Mm. So it's not that the old couldn't adapt, it's that they weren't necessarily used to the pace of adaptation. It's not that old soldiers couldn't adapt. There were multiple generals who were highly sceptical of what people like David Sterling wanted to do with the SAS. But there were a couple who went, I don't entirely understand it. I don't, I'm not entirely convinced of it. But if you're right and you win, we win big time. You know, and all Sterling was initially given, I think from memory, was eight officers, 60 men and a base with no equipment. <laughs> the SAS furnished their first base by raiding a New Zealand base and stealing everything, including the bar and the piano. <laughs> <laughs> Not a great way to make friends, no. but when you are a dangerous bunch of dudes <laughs> no who get a rep very quick for being hyper scary. <laughs> no one's gonna no one's gonna ask any questions. No, because they're probably not gonna find where their stuff went. Because <laughs> they're not allowed on your base. <laughs> yeah. So what we see is the normal system was okay at making sure that disciplined processes got better because they often didn't create them, they implemented them and maintained them. So older scientists, older soldiers, older engineers, older manufacturing engineers didn't necessarily have the amazing idea, but they could improve the system a bit. They could make everything work better. They didn't necessarily come up with the breakthrough, but they could happily implement the breakthrough once told to. Mm. So where you need flexibility is at the absolute top and at the bottom and for the top to be able to look down and go, you are interesting, kid. I'll move you over here with the other interesting people and we'll let you run free. So what, what really comes out of it, I think, is the beginning of consistently two-speed systems. We have the system that maintains a minimum and that minimum keeps getting raised and people get trained better, they work better, productivity goes up. But out of that system, we're constantly recruiting those who can be in the system that pushes the limits, that gets the creative leaps. Mm. So if we look at modern warfare, if we look at Afghanistan, Iraq, we have two-speed militaries now. We have conventional militaries who do conventional things and we have special operations forces who carry a disproportionately high load because they're just trained to such a, you know, a higher level, a more extreme level, and they are selected to be psychologically able to deal with infinitely more stress on a daily basis. Mm. If we look at the corporate world, look at the difference between an old company that chugs along versus a new small startup. Even there we see self-selection. Companies like Apple, Microsoft now, are they getting better from internal creation or do they buy those teams of 10, 20 somethings? Yeah, that's right. And buy them off. 
So really, in a sense, I think what we're seeing in both the corporate world and the military world now is a reflection of what was unleashed in World War One. In the military sense, this is still this thing of terrorism is not an existential threat, but there are a group of people who are better equipped to deal with the high stresses of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency at an extreme tempo. So we overuse those people to the max. Mm. You know, we don't expect a 19-year-old who can't deal with that to do that. We take the 19-year-olds who give selection a go and give them an extra year's training, and then they start. Mm. In the same way that would we expect Microsoft to come up with a profound new product anymore, or do we just watch to see what micro startup they buy? Mm. So at the moment we have people who need to push themselves finding the streams that let them go to that extra level with company where everyone wants to push harder. So in technology, it's both creativity, invention, engineering. In the military, it's a desire to serve, a desire to push yourself, a desire to be on the limits. And in other areas of life, I'm sure it's exactly the same. You know, that we've got accustomed to the the two-speed world. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's it definitely reflected in our economy in the sense that... Well, we have a three-speed in Australia. Yeah. yeah. We have the industries that are wheezing and are probably going to die, <laughs> the ones in the middle that will get faster, and then we have the little things at the top screaming ahead, outperforming Australia and the world. Mm. But so often they have to leave. You know, when I started tutoring in 2002, what was fascinating was... The students I was teaching, because of 9-11, it was going to be a bit harder to leave. And then with the GFC in 2007-8, it got even harder to leave. So for the first time now, the very best of Australians don't default to leaving for London or New York. Hmm. Whereas from World War II onwards, that was the norm. If we look at our best brains of the 50s and 60s, nearly all of them lived in London or New York. Why wouldn't you? You go to the hothouse that lets you run in the fast version. Why would you want to run in the slow version? And then we get the weird thing now of, you know, people like me where I'm a weird little consultant. I teach some of the times. I train people some of the times. I solve problems with people for some of the time. Where because of technology, the speed of the fast economy, the fast thinking finds me via Skype. I don't have to leave. I can work from wherever I've got my phone and my laptop. In a sense, the career you're beginning to build as a long-form interviewer, mm. you don't need to be anywhere in particular. You're taking your desire to push hard and move fast wherever you've got your recording gear. <laughs> well, you know, there's something I think we plan on doing a little bit later is talking to people interstate, perhaps even internationally. Um, and, you know, there's ways that we can do that now with the technology available to us that we could never have never have done before. So what we've got now is not just that you get separated out of the normal speed world and enter the alternate one. Mm. No one in the normal speed world even knows there's that separation. <laughs> you just haven't found yourself a job just making the world go around. And I'm not picking on making the world go around. <laughs> when the world is not under existential threat, why push hard? And this is a terrible thing with climate change and an, a not-functioning economy. They're mm. both bad. 
but they're moving slowly, mm. which means we as a whole have not yet switched on to existential threat. Mm. We will switch on to existential threat. Mm. And when we do, we have the high-speed, creative, adaptive, teach-discipline systems to bring everyone else up to a useful level. But we don't need it en masse yet. It's one of those things that keeps coming up. It's like, you know, I'm, I feel... In, I feel in some respect de- deprived in my ability to flourish because I'm not faced with enough adversity, Yeah, at least by comparison to my grandparents. And that it reflects on a societal level as well as an individual level, right? Like at a certain level, we can't push until there's a platform below us that's rising. Mm. And that's what worked so brilliantly in World War II. The people at the top could push because every time they achieved something, the platform below them raised back under their feet mm. and gave them solid ground again. And that's that's a beautiful analogy. It is literally like being in an elevator where you jump up and the elevator mm. comes up and meets you. Mm. And that elevator is the slow system that when it makes ground, it can lose it again, but it wants to keep it. Mm. So part of the problem at the moment is you jump high, the floor doesn't move. The elevator floor is not rising to meet us. And what happens with existential threat in a democracy that can separate faith and reason is when it needs to rise, it can make the whole system rise. Now, mm. never forget things got you know worse after World War II. People forgot how to be disciplined. They forgot how to be creative. We let people settle into comfort. The world's been saved. So yeah, human gains don't get hung on to. Mm. Well, they haven't so far. Doesn't mean they can't. But what it means is in a non-existential threat period, you need to maintain higher levels of discipline, mm. which is why I talked to, you know, about discipline to the point where it's probably going to drive listeners mad. <laughs> but it's partially because I don't think I'm a pessimist. Mm. You know, one of my students once called me a cynical optimist. <laughs> I'll work out how bad it is and then try and fix it. So to me, there's enough bad things out there coming towards us, looming, that as many people as possible need to be able to implement discipline to be part of the creative bit that means the mass can rise and settle in behind at a level where as a whole we can survive existential threat. Mm. I mean, it's it's kind of cyclical anyway, right? Like Absolutely. If, if every time you, you evade it, you get some kind of peace period. But then if you kind of relax in in that peace period then something is inevitably going to come and threaten you again and that's the point of the flexibility of our brains we don't have genetic memory we can learn Mm. all this but get the we can get the profits of success the western world got the profits that came from world war ii of economic growth social openness creativity technology and what did we do with it partied hard and became great consumers how did that end you know, in fact, people that binge watch Netflix. Now, in itself, it ain't that bad a thing, <laughs> except for the fact that climate change and an ineffective economy are creeping towards us and they're very big and they will squish us individually like bugs, <laughs> which is why we will need the discipline and creativity of good systems yeah. that can transcend our individual limitations. Makes you question in some respect. We kind of discuss whether we have it better off than our grandparents, and it's not—it's not entirely clear. There's a lot to consider. I mean, being born into adversity as opposed to facing it in the middle of your lifetime is certainly a different kind of 
we now need to manufacture adversity Mm -hmm. so that people know how to deal, deal better with risk, deal better with hardship, deal better with anxiety because complexity is now going to be absolutely normal. With this much technology, it's not that the world wasn't ever uncomplex. Mm. You just didn't know about it. (laughs) The problem is now we know about too many things that don't directly affect us and we still worry about them. Mm. So now because of the nature of knowing about complexity, we need to habituate to you know, anti-fragility. And if you're not going to have the adversity just because the world is, if you can see the benefits of disciplined systems that get us past our intellectual limitations, our biological limitations, by using the system to prevent us failing, mm. you go, that should be built in everywhere. And making us nice is a good thing. But what we need to be is both nice and anti-fragile. Mm. Comes back to that whole assertive thing. Where being nice is just passive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's nice to be nice. It's nice to care about other people. It's nice to build a kind society. Mm. It's nice to build a society that lets a blind person be included. Mm. But it's not enough. Mm. Because nice is too fragile. Mm. Nice has to be at a minimum robust and ideally anti-fragile. You know, David Goggin's point, if you are not moving forward, there is no staying still. There is only forward or backward. Mm-hmm. And people can argue whether that's true or not. And I'll go, well, so much change so fast means still is going backward because the world is screaming away in front of you. And the problems are screaming towards us. It's like trying to stay still in an elevator that's going up. Precisely. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you, David. It's certainly, there's a lot to think about. It certainly gives you a different appreciation, I think, of the history that we're we're taught. Yeah. History's not just facts. It's how do people survive these events? And more importantly, how do people thrive when they shouldn't have? Mm. It's less about thinking. It's less about remembering the suffering and appreciating that the successes yeah, yeah. and appreciating how they got there as a, yeah, as yeah. opposed to the fact that they got there yeah. getting there is great but you need to know how to do your version of getting there that's right alright David well we'll end it there thank you Tim hello listeners if you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe and like our Facebook page search for Blind Insights with David Olney Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. OzCast.